about to reconcile, wreck and wreck and wreck We about to reconcile, bitch. We about to We about to reconcile, we about to reconcile, we about to reconcile, we about to Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to yet another edition of River Reconcile. This coming straight from the streets of Fort Worth. We are excited to be here and have you listening as I am indeed flanked with none other than the mellifluous, the marvelous, and the magnificent Mr. Marcellus Perkins. What's going on, my brother? Dr. G, how you doing? I'm super fantastic. Thank you for asking. We are absolutely excited because today, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have a treat. We're with I call an intellectual celebrity. We have an individual who by sheer force, will, and genius, I think that's an appropriate word, has created a movement that we are absolutely interested in learning more about when we talk about reconciliation and healing. And that would be Dr. Rhonda Thomas of the Call My Name Cleansing Project. Dr. Thomas, welcome to Reconcile This. Good morning, Dr. Thomas. Good morning, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely, Dr. Thomas. So. How do we get started on this whole project? I mean, how do you end up becoming this lightning rod of national prominence? How does it get started? It started with a question. Hmm. So when I started working at Clemson back in 2007, I knew nothing about the campus because I came as a postdoc. And on my very first day at work, uh, after showing me my office and our library and our classroom building, my colleague, Mike Lemahue, said he needed to show me something and he took me to the center of campus and there stood John C. Calhoun's Fort Hill Plantation House. I was stunned because I thought I had been really thorough in doing my research on this university and looking into its history and I thought how could I have missed learning that the university was built on a plantation. So Dr. Thomas, I just got to jump in real quick. So here we are recording live at Clemson University. And what you're suggesting is that, well, first of all, for our listeners, some people may not know who John C. Calhoun is and what a significant figure he is with respect to the Confederacy, racism, slavery, these topics that we're talking about. So just, just to rewind, you're, you're an employee at Clemson University. You're excited about this new career in terms of teaching students. I mean, that's what your focus is. And yet, you received this surprise. So let's backtrack a little bit. Who is Calhoun and why was that so unsettling and surprising? Well, John C. Calhoun was one of the most prominent statesmen of the 19th century, in my opinion. He served in many different roles in the federal government, including vice president, uh, secretary of state. Uh, he also was a very, very prominent and influential uh, US Senator from South Carolina. And I think in that role, is where his connections to slavery are most significant. He is a man who stood on the floor of Congress and said, slavery is a positive good. Mm. And he owned enslaved people on the Fort Hill Plantation. He and his family purchased uh, 
traded, uh, rented out, enslaved people. Um, so for him, in his Fort Hill world, out in the middle of nowhere in the back country of South Carolina, I think he sort of created this, for him, this little paradise mm -hmm. where uh, at least 50 enslaved people in his lifetime were working on the plantation, taking care of his family, uh, planting and harvesting crops. And so for him in that little world that he was in, I think slavery was a positive good, that he convinced himself that slavery was a positive good. Um, also his nullification doctrine that had to do with states' rights, uh, the right of the state to you know, reject um, a mandate by the federal government helped to lead to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So states' rights and slavery, you know, don't take away my right to own people is one of the concepts, one of the beliefs of the Southern states that helped lead to the Civil War. So, so in many respects, Calhoun is maybe an architect of succession? Uh, I think so, um, absolutely. So for the name Clemson, where does the name Clemson come from? So this is Calhoun's land, where does Clemson come into play? So that's his son-in-law, Thomas mm -hmm. Green Clemson married um, Calhoun's daughter, Anna, and actually married her right in the Fort Hill Plantation House, the parlor <laughs> of the Fort Hill Plantation House. And the we don't have time to go through the long right, right. history of the house and how it passed from family member to family member. But ultimately, Mrs. Calhoun uh, in her will left the house to Anna and her granddaughter, Floride. And Anna left the house to her husband. Mm. And so he was basically the last person standing. Uh, Anna and Thomas Van Clemson had started talking about a college, building a college. They had those conversations with John C. Calhoun as well. And so when Thomas Green Clemson died in his will, uh, he left the Fort Hill Plantation and his estate uh, to the state of South Carolina to start a college. And so when we talk about plantation, we want to be clear, Clemson was actually founded after the era of enslavement had ended. However, I believe you discovered a very troubling connection with African-American labor or exploited African-American labor in Clemson. Would you care to share? Yeah, so the history starts with enslaved labor, right? Hmm. Oh, on the plantation. Oh. So the plantation is still operating during Reconstruction. Okay. So right after Reconstruction, um, some of the enslaved people actually stay by and work as sharecroppers. We mm -hmm. found agreements that they signed uh, between Thomas Green Clemson and at least 44. Uh, and they are labeled as freedmen and women mm. on the contract. So we know that they were former slaves and we have discovered that some of them actually have been enslaved on Fort Hill. Okay. And then after that, when Clemson was founded, the college Clemson was founded, um, the trustees decided to lease convict laborers from the state penitentiary mm. to build the college, right? Yeah. Cheap labor, uh, didn't have a whole lot of money. Right. And so they looked around and that cheap labor force um, many African-Americans as young as 12 years old oh. uh, were on the list of convicts assigned to Bill Clemson. Mm -hmm. So you have at least three generations of labor, and then you have wage workers who are hired to work at the college, yeah. who are cooking and cleaning and farming and doing all of the hard labor. Oh, and for me, the same jobs that enslaved people, sharecroppers, and even the convicts did, uh, these low-wage workers 
our, our hired as employees to continue doing the same kind of labor that black people have done on the land since the early 1800s. Hmm. I know in your book, and I just want to say on, on record, I really enjoyed reading, reading the book. Um, I learned, much. I learned so much. Um, I was telling one of my friends, it's one thing to read a book. Mm-hmm. It's another to spend the entire day with the author to kind of hear some of the backstories or hear some of the, the, um, the emotional work that you had to do in preparation of the, the book. But even the aftermath when the book comes out, some of the responses that you're receiving, some of the pushback that you're receiving. So for you, and I want to give the context, you're from South Carolina, right? Yes, you I'm are, a sixth generation South Carolinian. Where, how far is your family in position to Clemson in regards to like the origins of your family? Pretty close. Pretty close, right? So when I started this project, I had no idea that I would find a connection between my family and the Clemson family, as right. Clemson likes to characterize our community. Hmm. So I, as I was dipping in all these archives, trying to document the story of African-Americans at Clemson, I thought, hey, wait a minute, I'm from South Carolina. I should start mm-hmm. looking for my family too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I knew a whole lot about my family history, but one thing I didn't know was the birth name of my great, great grandmother on my dad's side. Mm-hmm. So I called one of my cousins and he told me it was Wanamaker. And so I just jotted that name down in my family tree. And a few months later, I was sitting in a library looking at some documents that one of my research assistants had pulled from our archive at Clemson about convicts. And I saw this thing, Wanamaker. And I'm sitting there looking at the page saying, where have I heard that name before? And I thought, oh no, that's Lucretia's last Mm -hmm. name, Wanamaker. Mm -hmm. So I started looking for the Wanamakers and they were showing up in Orangeburg. And I thought, that's not where Lucretia was from. But then I found out that Orangeburg had been divided into a Calhoun County in Orangeburg. And when I looked at where John Wanamaker's family was from and I looked at Lucretia's origins and I discovered that it was in the same place. Mm. So I have a picture of Lucretia and I have a picture of John Wanamaker. And when I put them side by side, it was like she was his, his sister. Their wow. body types are very similar. Mm. So I've had um, genealogists look into our family history and yeah. they have traced and made the connection between my family and the Wanamakers of South Carolina. Wow. So I, that, that to me, you know, as you're going in, you're doing this work, unpacking Clemson's history regarding African-American history, you find your own history. Well, I found my own history, one of, trustees, own history. Yeah, and, one of the first trustees, yeah. I, I want to know, and I think this would be important for our listeners, how do you reconcile hmm. with that? How do you, you know, as you're unpacking this work and you're looking into Clemson history, you find your own personal history. I mean, you're connected to this work mm-hmm. because we're talking about, you know, Black people, um, and enslavement at this university and some of the trials and tribulations, but to find a name and to more importantly return humanity back to these people by telling their stories, what does that mean for you? You know, it freaked me out. Yeah. I'm just gonna be real honest <laughs> right. when I found that connection because I teach early African American literature, and I've talked to my students about the fact that 
I don't know how many times I've stood up and said, I am a descendant of enslavers and enslaved people. And, you know, but it was, I was detached from mm. the history because right. I didn't have a name. Right. You know, I didn't know who the enslaver was. Right. I, I, we were hearing stories about possibilities uh, more on um, my granddad's side, on my dad's side of the family. I heard a story about my, my mother's great grandfather being brought down from Virginia. And so there were all these stories about slavery, but not about enslavers. Hmm. And so when I, when I found out John Wanamaker's family, and it's likely his father or one of the father's brothers, they were very, very prominent South Carolinians, which made it even more difficult. So right. like the man, you know, John Wanamaker's father signed the Articles of Secession in South Carolina. Hmm. This is a family that has very deep roots in the state. And so I had a name, you know, uh, I know where the plantation is. Mm -hmm. I've seen pictures of it. Mm -hmm. I haven't gone there yet because I just right. haven't brought right. myself to be able to walk down the land. Right. And I remember I couldn't sleep. Mm -hmm. I would wake up in the middle of the night, um, shaking my husband and saying, you know, honey, like the watermakers own Lucretia, you know, like. They own my great great grandmother, the mm. woman who raised my grandmother. Mm. You know, and I'm just I'm just trying to think about the fact that I thought that I was, you know, all these generations away mm. from slavery, and right. I I realized that my grandmother, right. who I love dearly, right. had mm. been raised by a woman who was a slave. Mm. Oh. And so it was. I teach differently now. I talk wow. about enslavement differently now because. It's not this abstract concept that, yes, right. way back right. in the 19th century, um, I had ancestors who were enslaved. Mm. Now I can name the names of people and they're connected with my employer as this man who was revered uh, and who was invited to help found the college, now university where I work. Right. There's a building on campus named for him. Wow. But I just found out that my family recovered a cemetery where Lucretia is buried. Wow. So for years, we didn't even know where she was buried, right? So, so it's like, so there's- When you talk about not knowing in this journey and how you've been changed as a result, you said you changed the way that you teach. My, my question is, what, what has the journey been like in terms of sharing this story? Because if you're South, excuse me, if you're sixth generation South Carolinian, I'm trying to imagine of others on campus who also may be so close to the history, but yet so far away in terms of really understanding the complexity or the depth and, and you know, to which these connections do run. So how has it been for you in terms of sharing what you found and as far as others proceeding down the path towards acknowledgement and reconciliation? I think for me, uh, it's given me a greater desire to help people document their histories. So one of the projects that I work on related to Call My Name is our cemetery project. And all of these African-Americans, like these generations of African-Americans starting in the early 1800s, you know, through, I would say, integration in 1963. So we've got over 100 years of history. And I thought about all of those people um, or connected to Clemson or connected to the land in some way, uh, our ancestors of Black people in South Carolina or who have South Carolina roots. And I'm in a position to 
help document that history. So we could just tell these stories and, you know, kind of make information available. You know, I'm happy to share uh, schedules of enslaved people and, you know, mm -hmm. inventories of enslaved people. And they're all- Because the you have receipts, right? you have receipts. Yeah, we've got the receipts. But then I thought, can we do more? Mm -hmm. um, because this work is really difficult, combing through letters, combing through census records. Not everybody has access to the internet or right. not everybody can purchase an Ancestry.com membership. Right. Not, not everybody can do DNA testing. So I thought, what can we do? So we decided to create a database that has the receipts. Mm. So our database has names. It tells where the person was, if they have any affiliations with community organizations like churches or civic organizations, that's noted. Uh, and then in the attachments, any document that we find is accessible. Mm -hmm. So we are working with the Family um, Research Center at the International African American Museum in Charleston have just started a conversation about connecting our database with their Family oh, Research wow. Center. Okay. So if you're coming to South Carolina and you're like, we think our people were from the upstate, then instead of you having to come all the way to Clemson, mm -hmm. you know, when you're in Charleston, right. you will be able to, our hope is that right. people will be able to access that database that we're creating. We have over 7,000 names so far. Oh, wow. and we're just getting started. We wow. expect to have probably 10 to 20,000 names when we're done. Wow. So this starts with the first, um, enslaved people who were here in 1803, 1803 to 1805 with Reverend um, McElhaney, who came before the Calhouns, pastor of a local church, enslaver, mm. and goes through the antebellum period, the reconstruction period, uh, up to at least integration at Clemson in 1963. Every name that we can find mm. will be in that database. So if you have a name, even if it's just a first name, and right. often that's all you have, right. at least it will give people the opportunity to trace that name over generations. And when you say 1963, I guess that's a significant date because that is when Clemson University was officially integrated by Harvey Gantt yes. by the uh, lawsuit uh, in January. But you mentioned a word I want to really circle back to. You mentioned cemetery in passing. Mm -hmm. We have to go back and unpack mm -hmm. a little bit more about the cemetery project. Sure. Uh, because uh, Mr. Perkins and I, were uh, researching Clemson before we came to uh, South Carolina. And we understood that there was some sort of cemetery that was located near the football stadium. Right. However, comma, yeah. to my chagrin, shock, surprise, dismay, I'll stop there. Uh, I didn't realize that you could literally throw a football yeah. from the stadium to a sacred place yeah. where bodies are buried. I'm about to get upset. Nah, no, I, no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, so we were driving the car and we looked over like, is that it? I mean, it's, it's literally in, right behind the football stadium. And for those that, I don't know, maybe under a rock, Clemson football has national notice and status. Um, so wait, 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 and up until last year, what happened? I, <laughs> wait, no, 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 seriously, we have to go this. What happened up until last year? Oh, oh, so um, what we understand is that they were able to tailgate on, on top on of top. this unmarked inside the cemetery. Inside. That, that, when you told us that information, I think all of us there just had to take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. 
to to really take that in um because it, it, it's layered it, it's so layered um no yeah, no seriously i mean i'm gonna dance on the bones of a, a dead black body i mean and then go walk down and celebrate a black body running down up and down a field to catch a football yeah i'm sorry <laughs> yes <laughs> it, is, it was. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot it's, it's a to, lot. to digest. A former cop field. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. So yeah, so I um, was introduced to Woodland when I first came here. I know only about the cemetery, mm. and so about it was about 2014. I met Dr. Bostic. Dr. Jim Bostic is a very distinguished uh, African American alum. Mm -hmm. He's the first um, PhD. First PhD. First PhD. We had the uh, pleasure first of meeting. African-American yeah. PhD. I think um, he was one, I think he said he was about the fifth African-American student to come to Clemson back mm -hmm. in 1965. And he's grown into a significant donor. Yes. Very, very um, accomplished alum uh, who has worked in the White House, worked for Corporate America, Georgia Pacific, uh, and now is a very generous donor and supporter of Clemson in just extraordinary ways. He and his wife, Edie. So Dr. Bostic uh, learned about my project, uh, gave me a very generous donation of $50,000 um, with the caveat that Clemson would have to match it. I was skeptical that that would happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, Dr. Bostic is a very persuasive person and he uh, convinced the university to match his donation. And then about two years later, um, they gave me the same amount of money. So they doubled the original amount because of the work that they saw the work, the impact of the work we were doing. Right. So as I was getting to know Dr. Bostic, um, he was introducing me to various people and I had not had a favorable experience with um, the first administration when I came. Uh, President Barker was um, the administrator I write about this in my book. I right. went to him right. and asked if Clemson would just endorse a research project. Mm -hmm. I didn't ask for money. I said, you know, let's just, all these, these schools, I just graduated from the University of Maryland. They had a year-long investigation to just see if there are any ties to slavery. And I'm like, well, we're on a we're plantation. On a plantation. <laughs> we don't have to see, but in let's like, can we learn more right. about this history? Because at that time, um, we weren't talking about it. You would go on a, a tour of the house and you wouldn't hear about slavery or and we say the house the plantation the plantation house if you went on a tour of john c Collins plantation home you didn't hear anything about enslaved people mm. or the uh, system of and it's slavery. literally across the street from the dorm that houses mostly, mostly african-american African students uh, so you have yeah, all yeah, of yeah. these right so there's a lot of you know when you're walking on campus when i first got here and i'm learning all of these things and i'm saying this is a really difficult place yeah. for a black person to be yeah. That mm -hmm. There's a plantation house here. Mm -hmm. You're going to put mostly African American students across the street from this plantation mm -hmm. house. You're not going to talk about slavery in said plantation house. And then you learn about all the building the names. And um, the cemetery. People knew about the cemetery. Well, not exactly. Okay. So okay. getting okay. back to that. So, you know, we're learning about, I'm learning about the built landscape and then, you know, about Tillman and these Confederates who were Clemson founders and professors who have buildings named after them. Pitchfork, so, tell me that. Right, you know, so I'm learning all this history. And so the story of the cemetery is completely kind of off the table. There's mm. nobody talking about any Black people buried in the cemetery. Mm. 
So people knew, but no one was talking about it. It was not, there was no marker. Mm -hmm. So in this meeting that Dr. Bostic arranges for me to have this conversation with President Barker and our university historian at the time, Jerome Real, um, just kind of in passing, they say, oh, there's a, a slave cemetery in Woodland. Mm. And this is, you know, I've been here since right. 2007. It's 2015, wow. 2014, 2015. And that's the first that I've heard. And they're like, what? So they're like, yeah, we'll show it to you. So literally hidden in plain sight. It was here right for there. eight years. I have been here. No one said anything about okay. it. Okay. Um, there was, you know, so there was no place on the website where I could have gone to find mm -hmm. that information. No one was talking about it. So we hopped in the car, went over to the cemetery, couldn't find it. I drove back later very carefully. So they said it's a fenced in area kind of down the slope uh, on the left side of the cemetery when you come in. So I came back, drove around, and there it was. Mm. So when we looked closer, it was all grown over, you know very neglected. Mm. So Dr. Bostic and I um, worked together to install a historical marker. And at that time, it was called the Fort Hill uh, Slave and Convict Cemetery. So some of the convicts died uh, while they were working at Clemson are, and are believed. And so they were telling us it was in this small, like little, less than an acre space with the fence around it. Right. So what we found out later is that the fence wasn't there to demark the cemetery, it was there to deter construction workers from dumping in that area. Mm. Uh, wow. so, so it wasn't out of honor and respect. No. It was just out of efficiency. It was out of, yeah. Okay. And so, you know, that's what I'm saying. Okay. There's <laughs> just so many things happening. So there's no marker. There was a sign at one set time that said, um, I think, unknown burials, Sarah, 1865. But yet it was a slave cemetery. And I'm like, this can't be Sarah 1865 if enslaved people are buried here. Right. And so there were all these contradictions about the space. Um, then I learned that an African-American anthropologist, archaeologist had been on site uh, to study the area. Uh, but when I asked about her papers, they gave me her artifact box, mm. even though I just found out in the summer of 2020 that they had, she had left some papers. Oh, mm. yeah. Right? And yeah. so I'm thinking, what is going on? Right. <laughs> um, I'm just I'm at a university right. asking questions and right. trying to learn this history, right. and I can't seem to get access at a university, right? Even to materials that we have. Right. So I started giving campus tours, found sites all over campus associated with African Americans, began giving call my name tours, and the last one that I gave right before the pandemic, there were two uh, students with me. Morgan uh, Meloso and Sarah Adams. Uh, and they were on the tour. We didn't have time to walk all the way over to the fenced area, but I pointed to it and I said, you should come back because that's a very special place. Uh, and I encourage you to come back and visit the burial ground. And they did. Mm -hmm. And when they came back, they found it had grown over again. The fence was falling down. And once again, Clemson had neglected the sacred site. Erasure and decay. Right. So they come back to me. They're very, very upset. And uh, I'm like, okay, this time we're going to do it right. And I've got students working with me. 
maybe we'll get some traction. It took a little while, but you know, we work with the University of Storm. We pulled everybody in. I was like, we're gonna pull everybody in this hospital facilities, historic properties, the University of Storian, Dr. Foster got involved, the provost office was involved, and we were going to clean it up, mm-hmm. put a little memorial there, and and be done. Um, we decided that we needed to do some ground penetrating radar to see if we could detect where exactly where the graves were. Uh-oh. And so the night before the staff for doing that process was to begin, a couple of our uh, our team members were in the library and voila, they found Harold Cohen Rick's papers. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story. We'll have to have part two. Okay. <laughs> the okay. papers okay. suddenly mature. And I'm like, okay, I asked for these like right. seven years ago. Right. Right. Nobody, they gave me artifacts. So they're going through the papers and they find a court order from 1960. Clemson had gone to uh, the court and asked permission to disinter uh, remains of African-Americans. I suggest knowledge. It was the place. Mm. It was on the west side of the cemetery, not on the south side where that small fenced-in area was. Mm. And I thought, what? Wait, we disinter for what reason though? To campus honor and to well, campus right? development. Oh, oh, for development. campus development. Oh, so campus was growing. Oh, I see. You know, the stadium was expanding. Right. Oh, they stadium. needed more parking. Right. More parking. You know, so um, campus development. Okay. So they said, put a notice in the paper. I think for thirty days. I think it was. If no one comes yeah. forward, then you have permission. And so no wow. one came forward. And so. Um, they start this process. We don't know how many graves, there are no records of what they did, um, but it appears that they stopped. And one of the reasons they might have stopped is we have very acidic soil in upstate South Carolina. So if they're digging to find remains, more likely than not, they didn't find anything. Mm-hmm. They probably just found disturbances in the soil. Because the acidic soil, you say it takes about 50 years to decompose. For the body to decompose. So if you have, right? So if you have, you know, someone who was buried in 1850, right. 100 years later, Nothing. right? 120 years later, dust, dust, ashes, dust, ashes, dust, right? dust, dust. dust left. And so you might've seen little disturbances in the soil. That might've happened, we don't know. And, um, and so with the little time we have left, when you talk about GPR, how many total graves have you all discovered? And, and, and what, what's the, the plan to Yeah, to so that first this? day, it was, two, I think, over 200. Mm-hmm. On the first day. On the first day. Oh. So that was the west side and the south side. So we decided to do the whole cemetery, which is about 17 acres. So to date, we found 667 wow. unmarked burials. And counting. And counting. And counting. So the plan is, because the trustees are the stewards of the cemetery, they've been very involved. And I have to say, extremely supportive of this work. We well, um, need that support. Right. right. Extremely yeah. supportive of this work. Um, I have talked with the chair, Kim Wilkerson, of the cemetery, the former chair, Smith McKissick, and you know, they unequivocally said, we are honoring every person who's buried in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. So right now, there are new policies being developed because there are some unmarked graves and some plots that have been assigned mm-hmm. to people. If you walk over there, you can see that. That is public knowledge. You walk in, you will see them. So we have to make decisions about uh, how do we deal with plots that have been assigned, uh, plots that have unmarked burials, 
Um, also, most importantly to me, how do we honor right. those who right. are buried and unmarked, right? unmarked you know, right. graves? So um, we hope to put temporary markers down. There are plans to put in a memorial um, because there are graves that are under the pavement, uh, the marked pathways now. Um, those will no longer you know, be accessible because they're graves and graves mm. could be you know, two feet, three feet, four feet. So there's not an easy way to maneuver around them. So we'll be bringing in civil engineers to help us create new pathways. Um, so we want the whole story right. of the cemetery told from as far back. Right now, our team is documenting that history and we want that to be accessible to the public. So, you know, memorials for unmarked graves, a memorial for black laborers in right. Clemson history. Um, the memorial will also tell the story of Woodland Cemetery. Uh, a lot of um, very prominent and influential Clemson um, founders, I call them professors, administrators, and their families were buried mm -hmm. in the cemetery as well. Um, so it's this massive undertaking uh, to restore uh, honor and dignity and right. respect right. Uh, into this. For me, it's a very sacred spot. It's one of the most sacred spots on the campus. I want to, there's, there's a very intentionality and language that uh, we've all used in this podcast today that I, want, I think the listeners will find very insightful. You've been using enslaved person mm -hmm. as opposed to slaves. Can you talk about why that's so important when we're trying to honor and preserve and return the humanity back to people whose humanity has been taken away and even how their stories have been told has been taken away by referring to them as enslaved people as opposed to slaves? I think what my slave is 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 sort of this classification mm -hmm. of uh, property, right. Right? right? That there was a system of slavery and that system of slavery had these commodified bodies that were a part of the system. Um, for me, enslaved means that this is a system that was imposed mm -hmm. on a human being. Yeah. Right? Right. That it's not something that you were born, right? You're not born a slave, right. you're born a human being right. and right. you become enslaved because someone owns you. Right. So I think, you know, the word slave for me, um, that, dis that making that distinction uh, affirms humanity yep. instead of restoring. Humanity is never lost yeah. for me. But this system of slavery that was created uh, caused thousands of people to look on people of African descent and others as commodities, they mm -hmm. dehumanize mm -hmm. them. And so mm -hmm. for me, that word slave mm -hmm. continues the dehumanization yeah. in the 21st century. Yeah. Right? We know better, so we need to do better. Mm. And by doing better, we call them enslaved. It was a system imposed on people. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Thomas, for reminding us about the humanity involved with this work, uh, the dignity and respect that all human beings are afforded on this planet Earth. And you're right. These are people, not a, a slave is a noun, just like a pencil or a, an ink pen or, or something of the nature, but these are actual people. And we appreciate your efforts in reminding us that this is complicated. This is arduous work, it's complicated. You've been grinding at this for years. And I think you also remind us that within a university setting, it is indeed appropriate for us to wrestle with these questions. Yeah. And Absolutely. this all got started, you said, with the question. And with students being curious and with students being involved, this hopefully can shine a light upon the path for others who wish to follow down the path for reconciliation. 
I hope so. I hope that Call My Name can uh, inspire people to do the work. It's it's difficult work. Mm-hmm. It's emotionally challenging, but it's essential. I cannot promise what will ultimately happen as a result of our enterprise in studying TC's relationship with slavery, racism, and the Confederacy. But I can pledge to you that we are doing the best we can with what we have. We're about to reconcile, tell them to get off my style. We're about to reconcile, 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 reconc